Welcome to On Strike, a production of Workers Strike Back. I'm Shama Sawant. My co-host Bia Lacombe will be back with us next week. Today we are going to be talking about the politics of sports. The connection between sports and politics may not be immediately apparent, but hundreds of millions of working people around the world love sports and spend part of their precious hours outside of work watching or playing sports. And in reality, there is a lot to discuss about the role of sports in society. But first, I want to talk about OnStrike and the membership drive we have launched for Workers Strike Back. Become a member now and help ensure Workers Strike Back can continue to organize to rebuild a fighting labor movement and that OnStrike can continue to bring you coverage of a wide range of issues that are very hard to find on mainstream media, like in today's show. OnStrike doesn't run any ads we don't accept any corporate money, and we rely entirely on donations from working people to support our work. You're not alone, right? You're not just sitting on your couch, doom scrolling, um, reading all these different terrible news stories alone, that there are thousands and in reality, millions of working class people who feel just as frustrated and also want to see a path forward, who know that higher wages, high quality health care and high quality housing are totally possible. We're building on the example of the past decade in Seattle on a national scale to widen and strengthen the class struggle. Who here wants to be a part of that movement? Go to workerstrikeback.org and click on become a member. Today, OnStrike is delighted to have Suzanne Rack, who is a British sports journalist and soccer writer at The Guardian. She's the author of A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall, and Rise Again of Women's Football. Suzanne has often written and spoken about why she believes sports are important for working people and political activists. Taking the example of soccer or football as it's known outside the United States, Suzanne has talked about how the inequalities in wealth and power between the super rich and the mass of ordinary people that is omnipresent under global capitalism is starkly laid bare in the world of sports and soccer specifically. She has described how even though the game of soccer has unfortunately become a playground for oligarchs and the billionaire class, it still remains the sport of ordinary people, in part because of how accessible it is. Unlike other sports that require expensive equipment and facilities, all you need is a ball, which for the poor can be made of whatever it needs to be, whether socks, a mass of plastic bags or rags, or most anything else that can be constructed into something round. I spoke this past November in Liverpool in Britain at a rally organized by Socialist Alternative of England, Wales, and Scotland, which is the sister organization of Socialist Alternative in the US. Suzanne spoke at the rally also, and I was struck by her words. She said, quote, where politics has isolated many, football retains their attentions. That makes football extraordinarily powerful. The voice of football, what football does and how it is run, matters because people follow it. It is also one of the few areas left with rents sky high and populations so transient where ordinary people can experience community, collective joy and pain and feel united." End quote. With women's soccer, Suzanne has helped put a spotlight on the fight for equal and equitable pay and better working conditions and the battles of women players against sexism, sexual abuse, and racism, battles that have helped embolden large numbers of women to understand the power of collective action and solidarity. It's really great to have you on the show, Suzanne. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Great. 
to start with, why do you think the world of sports should be seen in the political context and shouldn't be dismissed by the left? And why do you think sports is important for working people? What does it represent to them? I mean, the thing is with, with sport is it's it's so like universally loved, right? Like there's so many sports that like enter into every area of society. Every household, there is a fan of sport, of a sport. I mean, football in particular is, like you said um, in your intro, is at the forefront because it is so accessible and it's so cheap to play. You don't need, you know, kind of expensive equipment like you do for cricket or for um, or basketball where you need hoops, you know, that kind of thing. You, you, you can just make a ball out of anything, chuck down anything for some goalposts and, and you can play football. So it's hugely accessible and brings people together. It like inspires teamwork, collaboration. It's not about an individual. An individual can't be the the hero of the hour. They can be a part of something special. They can be a key cog in the machine. But they they are, um, you know, it's it's the purest example of collective action in a way. In that you know, there's no way you can win a game of football without collaboration. Um, and solidarity amongst teammates and then it's obviously hugely followed so it, it's got a extraordinary power um, because uh, it's it's so influential I mean in many senses you've got um, football teams you know the Manchester United's Real Madrid's Barcelona's Manchester City's of the world sort of command more respect than than governments do or political parties do um, and that's an extraordinarily powerful position for it to be in. And yet it's used so, so poorly for any kind of good. Um, and it's all about profit and uh, commercialization and just kind of building and building and building on this, this almost like an economic bubble, right? Where um, it, it, it needs, it sort of needs to survive and thrive off ever increasing profit. So it's, yeah you know, very similar to all other areas of society in that respect, but the huge power it wields in terms of just the sort of the love, the trust, the investment that people have in it, um on a on an emotional level, um, and the way they connect with sport makes it a really, really powerful thing. You know, when when football um or or athletes say something, it resonates far greater than say if a politician says it. And that like I think in and of itself speaks for the power of sport. Yeah, that's a very important point, and I think one of the most uh, the points that hit most home to me uh, in what you just said is how the loyalty and respect that ordinary working people around the world feel for their sports teams and for the idea of sports itself is so much greater. Like, there's just vastly greater than any respect they feel for the political parties of big business, uh, regardless of where you are, whether it's in Britain or the United States or any other country. And in fact, uh, this... I think it's part uh, to do with your book. So uh, I was wondering if you could talk about your book, the woman, a woman's game, and why you felt this topic was so important to write about. Yeah, so I I actually had zero intention of writing a book. Um, like wasn't that interested in it, but I was approached by a, a really nice agent who um, he uh, he's an amateur referee himself, so he's involved in football, and you know he thought that there would be a really good time to do a sort of general history of women's football ahead of the women's Euros being held in England in 2021, which then got pushed back by COVID till 2022. Um, and he sort of talked me into it, and I thought, oh, you know, that's actually quite a good idea. And like the reason why he was able to sort of talk me into it is I sort of thought I don't want anyone else to write this book because I don't think they'll do it the way I think it should be done, which is 
politically and putting women's football in the context of society and all of the struggles of society and all of the struggles of women throughout history um, because I feel like that's so crucial to the development of women's football, right? So when women's football is first taking off in England in sort of the late 1900s, it's in Victorian England, it's very frowned upon, it's being used as a tool of protest and struggle by um, you know women involved in the suffragettes and things um, because they see it that they've noticed its power. They've noticed it can have huge influence in society. And so they're recognising that this could be a, a tool for us to advocate for suffrage, the right to vote and all of these kind of things, the right to, for women to wear what they want um, more broadly in society. Um, so that's sort of like some of the very, very earliest um involvement of women in football is is from a political point of view more than you know necessarily a sporting point of view although the women involved in that loved football as well and were into it and you know saw it in in that sense um and then in the 1920s when you've got um women's football taking off again after it but sort of died down um that's at a point in which uh you know in the war periods um where you know hundreds of thousands of men are being sent off to fight in the war the factories are being filled with uh, a female workforce and they basically start to form um, women's football teams in the factories to keep morale up and stuff in the same way that many of the men's football teams were formed in factories and workplaces you know morale boosting fitness of your workforce um, you know building camaraderie between your workers that's what football was for Uh, and women were doing that in the war whilst men were off fighting there was no football being played because it had been paused for the war men were all off at war so women took on that as well as uh, stepping into the workforce so that was another huge like step forward and then you had this massive setback after the war ended and all the men come back and go back into the uh, back into the workplaces and women are forced you know after this massively progressive step of, of feeling like they start to have some kind of control over their lives and their futures and their livelihoods and aren't so tied to like economically to men um suddenly are forced back into that role and exactly the same thing happens in football suddenly you've got the um the FA talking about the unsuitability of uh, of football for women and um and you know getting doctors and and so-called experts to say that oh you know if women play football their uh their their uteruses will fall out while they're running and things like you know really mad things that just don't make any logical sense or any medical sense um but just so that they could sort of like sideline women and then also at that time women had been raising money for injured uh soldiers um during the war when they were playing and after the war was over they started raising money for their local communities so they were raising money for the struggles that were close to them striking miners a lot of them were in mining towns um, and other struggles like that and so they were becoming political and there was this money involved that was out of the control of the football association that they didn't like um because they didn't control women's football so these women were, were raising money huge sums of money for you know striking miners and things and it was becoming a political thing and they didn't like that that money existed and was going to places that weren't them <laughs> um so there, there's you know all throughout history there's these sort of pockets of um uh, moments in time where where the struggle of women to play football has been like directly um impacted and correlates to the struggle of women just generally in society and the just general you know workers struggles and so like I thought it was really important that the book told 
it from that point of view um, because I don't think that generally the sports is put into that position. Whereas, you know, as we know, everything is interconnected. Everything exists within uh, the capitalist system um, and is connected to it and has a relationship to it. And I wanted it to be told from that point of view so that you could start drawing parallels and people could take inspiration from other struggles and movements of women in other areas of society as well and see those parallels and recognise that, even just the act of playing football as a woman is a protest. Even if you have no political consciousness at all and feel completely removed from uh, voting or the system or, you know, the political parties around you or even your community, the fact that you're playing football and defying social norms and what is expected of a woman is a, is, is a political protest, even if you don't think of it that way, um, because you're pushing back against, um, the rules of the system um, and what is expected of you and that um, yeah to get people thinking like that so that's why I sort of wanted to write it to sort of have those discussions and tie those things together in a way that I you know I wasn't necessarily convinced that many others would 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 put forward that argument. And that's exactly why On Strike is interviewing you because I'm I'm also positive as you are that in the hands of a non-political writer or worse yet a somebody who's going to reinforce the standpoint that favors the logic of the capitalist system would have done a terrible injustice to this fascinating and inspiring history really of women football players or soccer players fighting back and uh, and revealing and, and as your book does revealing that foot, football or soccer is not just soccer not just a game that's happening on the field but it ends up forcing these women players to turn it into a battleground against misogyny and for workers' rights. And I think for a lot of our American audience, even young people, it will harken back to, I'm, I'm sure if you're interested in sports, no matter how young you are, I'm sure you know about Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali and how those uh, sportsmen like them became inspiring figures uh, who sort of got interwoven in the civil rights movement. And this is another example, the, the, the ongoing fight of women for their right to play soccer. And as you said, just kicking the football itself is an act of rebellion and protest. Uh, and specifically in, in that context, can you give us a sense of the battles women, soccer or football players have had to carry out over wages and working conditions specifically and how this fight back has spanned the entire world of women's soccer all the way from the United States to Africa? Yeah, I mean, it's it's immense really like and like unsurprising because you know if women have to struggle having to struggle in all these different areas of society generally why wouldn't those struggles exist within football you know you're not going to have I think you know many people think you're going to be able to build some kind of perfect world within women's football and you're just not you know it it, it, it exists in the context of all the pressures of society so it, it exists in the context of capitalism exactly well. right so you've got all those pressures of capitalism within women's football so you know in unequal pay poor conditions all of the things that women face in workplaces up and down um countries all over the world to varying degrees they experience within football so i mean you know in the u.s obviously you had the huge equal pay dispute of the u.s women's national team um which was basically in claimed so their big lawsuit claimed it was institutionalized gender discrimination and it was only settled in in 2022 after a long battle, you know, forced legal action, that kind of thing. And one of the big, um, you know, issues was that the um, 
the argument was well the, the men's team you know make more money so they deserve to be paid more than than the women's team and yet it's re- it reached a, it had to reach a point where the women's team were earning more which they were before they started to push back on that argument never mind they're doing exactly the same job um in exactly the same conditions but actually achieving more as well um but because the men were bringing in more because their tournaments were valued more it wasn't because you know they weren't you know necessarily bringing more people through the doors uh in ticket sales and things like that it was because uh, you know major tournaments so the world cup for example the men's world cup the prize money is so high compared to the women's prize money which is hopefully going to be equaled by leveled out by 2027 um and 2026 those two world cups they should be the same prize fund but for so long because the men's team have taken you know a significant portion out from just even qualifying for a world cup compared to the women who could reach a final and win a world cup and still take us you know less money out of a world cup it's meant that they've been able to argue that oh well they earn more so they deserve <laughs> deserve a bigger slice of the pie which is obviously a load of rubbish right. um and i mean it, that's proven at every level and you've got it happening in countries all over the world so canada they threatened strike action last year over discriminatory treatment um you know the federation's in big trouble there lots of financial difficulty but they the conditions of the team are really poor the uh they suffer from unequal pay as well in england uh the england women's team have equal pay to a certain degree um but they were getting ready to strike over unfair bonuses ahead of the world cup uh, and even threatened it and that was a big step because it was sort of the first time in england that um the England women's national team players had gone public about their disputes with the federation previously they everything's been done behind closed doors and they've negotiated and stuff and they've sort of for a very long time and I think in a lot of countries uh there's been a um a sort of gratitude complex where oh we've been given a few crumbs on the table so we've got to be really happy about that and you know you see that in workplace struggles right if your boss gives you a little bit you think oh yeah great let's not rock the boat further let's not go for more rather than thinking yes actually no we 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 have a case here we can push for for much much more we we have the power here we have the power to withdraw our labor through not playing matches and um which upsets broadcasters which upsets commercial deals you know there's huge huge strength there so they threaten that they've now won that dispute um are uh you know going to get much much better bonuses and much better commercial deals from the english fa but it's not just those countries it's you know nigeria threatened to boycott their first match of the women's world cup over unpaid bonuses um there were reports after they it, it took until after they were knocked out until we started to get um sort of detail about what had been going on but they're you know they didn't have enough hotel rooms so you have players sharing beds um and uh you know not eating properly because they couldn't afford food and flights you know flying economy and these are elite athletes that are you know having to cross time zones to compete in this tournament not being prepared properly to compete in it the republic of ireland threatened strike action in 20 2017 over conditions over having to change in public toilets in like airports and things like that sometimes having to share track suits with youth team squads australia they called for equal prize money for the women's world cup during the world cup itself um south africa boycotted a pre-tournament friendly over unpaid bonuses zambia are still battling um unpaid wages um and were battling that months before the world cup um and erode a significant sum of money denmark boycotted a game against sweden um 
before 2019 um, and basically sacrificed their place in the World Cup because that game being boycotted meant that the result was voided and it meant that they went into a really, really difficult playoff game instead of topping the group and essentially meant that they missed out on qualifying for the World Cup, whereas they likely would have qualified. So they they sacrificed a huge amount. And then you've got individuals making sacrifices too. Ada Hagerberg um, of Norway uh, basically went on strike from the national team for five years because um, she said and she's one of the best players in the world. She's the Champions League top goal scorer in Europe. Um, she like has scored more than 250 career goals, um, hugely successful, was the first woman to win the Ballon d'Or. When she was on stage, having won that award, she was asked to twerk on stage, which was, you know, hugely controversial, obviously. Um, no, Messi wasn't asked to twerk when he was got on stage collecting his award. But yeah, so she boycotted uh, international football for five years and refused to play over a dispute with the Norwegian um, Federation over a lack of resources and investment in women's football in Norway. And that's a level of sacrifice that you just don't see many players sort of taking. Um, and you definitely don't see many men's players taking as well. They don't generally sacrifice their sporting success and trophies um, and and take that kind of action. So, I mean, there's been huge, huge struggles um, like and they're pretty much constant. Like I say, Zambia is one that's ongoing, but there's a number of others. Um, and there's still, you know, even sort of in the aftermath of the World Cup, they um, uh, FIFA had announced that they were ring fencing money, uh, prize money for players as individuals from the World Cup prize money. Um, but still a number of players haven't been paid that money um, or they've been paid less of that money than they expected. And they're still having to fight for it, even though FIFA has mandated um, um, federations to pay them. It, I think it's around 30,000 um, uh, Australian dollars for competing in the group stage. And then if they get further, it goes up and up. Um, but, a lot of players still haven't been paid that money. And that's money that's like game changing. You know, that's, you know, more than a year's wages, sometimes more than two or three years wages for some of the players from the um, the least developed nations competing in the and, and And many of them are forced to have one and sometimes even two part-time jobs just to get by. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. You've got players who are, you know, competing in a in a world cup the biggest uh, the biggest show in town uh fighting um you know I, I think the women's world cup for the first time um made a profit um but also was the i think the second big the second um biggest um sort of money making sporting tournament in the world behind the men's world cup beating all other sports so it's a you know hugely significant tournament that generates a huge amount of money um even though it's you know obviously seconds to to the men's but then you've still got like you say players playing um in evenings after the men have finished training because they've got to work in the daytime and work two or three jobs you've got them training on artificial pitches instead of grass pitches which is dangerous for their um for their joints uh, joint health big injury risks um you've got players like you say working um numerous jobs which impacts the amount of training they can do impacts whether they can get to games impacts whether they can have a family short-term contracts that mean they are only signed up for a year so they don't know if they're gonna have to move in a year so they can't lay down any routes or or you know kind of you know afford to buy homes or cars and and, and things like that and 
that's very different to the men's game where, you know, a, a men's player changes teams and, well, they just buy another house, right? Like, they don't even have to sell the one they're in and, like, they can just buy one and then move and then sell it if they want to or they can keep it. Or, you know, they've got resources. They've got, um, you know... M- money at their at their at their disposal that can play for childcare and to pay for childcare in the new team and new country that they're moving to and all those kind of things a woman has uh, a team sell them and it's particularly pertinent in the US right where the trade the trading of players can happen without their knowledge and consent so you get a player being traded from one city in the states to another city in the states without their permission or knowledge and they're having to uproot everything and move it across the country um with you know very little compensation for having to make that move so they're having to think about selling their homes and buying new ones or renting ones or you know like they may not have ever been able to afford to buy one we're talking about wages that are so so much smaller than what the men are paid to be able to make to accommodate that kind of lifestyle um and they're not given a fraction of that so there's the struggles all the time there's like contradictions all the time um and yeah there's uh, it's it's ripe for um for sort of people to tie those all of those struggles together and make the connections with all of all of the struggles of of you know kind of not just women but just working class people in general in wider society because there's so many similarities and parallels between them Absolutely. And this is such an incredible chronicle of, I think, two features that really stand out. One is, as you've described so well, the incredible courage and sacrifice that women soccer players have undertaken. Uh, you know, and these are teams from every possible country that has uh, in an, an international level soccer team. And then the other thing that stands out, of course, is how much the billionaire class, the super rich who own these football teams, who own FIFA, the International Football Federation or Soccer Federation, how they make all this money, both from men's and women's football and soccer, and so little of that is shared with the players who are the actual stars who actually make this game happen and engage billions of people around the world. And, And in your book, you talk about, I think, Megan Rapinoe, US star player who called herself a walking protest because, you know, many of these players understand that uh, it's it, they can't really make this an actual sport, a viable sport, unless they keep fighting back for better conditions, better wages, more justice. And so in that context, talk about how the Matildas, the Australian national women's football team, how they recently won equal pay. What did it take for them to win? And obviously their fight is not over, but, you know, they've they've won a significant victory. How did they do that? And also talk about the importance for women soccer players to have a union. Oh, yeah. I mean, having a a union is critical. And that's been a big, like, controversial topic as well. Because I mean, particularly in England um, recently, because um, the Women's Super League players, the top tier of women's football in England, they are represented by the PFA, the Players Football Professional Football Association in England that represents all men, professional men's players. But they don't represent the Women's Championship players who are, uh, the Women's Championship is a part-time league. Um, so, you know, there's some professional teams in there, there's some semi-professional teams in there, but they they won't represent those players. And yet they're some of the players that need representation the most. They're the ones who are working jobs on the side. They're the ones who are battling the worst conditions of the teams that aren't quite as invested as teams at the top level. So 
union representation is key. And it's been a little bit of a battle to get union representation for the players because in a lot of cases it's the it's the may it's the professional men's teams and their leagues funding um the uh union membership of um of professional men's players. So the Premier League in England pays money to the PFA to um to uh give support to players basically and that doesn't necessarily exist in in women's uh women's football and that kind of level of money doesn't exist so you you know there's less of the pot to go around um never mind the fact that you know you could say that the money that the huge amount of money that you know they're making on the men's game should some of that should possibly go to the women's game which has been chronically underfunded for for many many years um there's a complete sort of contradiction there but yeah in terms of australia i mean they've it's been brilliant in that they've sort of you know through negotiations via the pfa have managed to um reach a sort of equal pay deal so that they're paid the same as the socceroos the men's team but there's still a gap there as well like you say because um in terms of the world cup like i say i think saying it uh towards the start about the u.s women's national team there's this massive gap between um, what uh, men's teams receive for competing in major tournaments or women's teams receive for competing in major tournaments. And that is still excluded. Prize money is still excluded from their pay deal. 736 footballers have the honour of representing their country on the world's biggest stage this tournament. Yet many are still denied the basic right to organise and collectively bargain. Collective bargaining has allowed us to ensure we now get the same conditions as the Socceroos, with one exception. FIFA will still only offer women one quarter as much prize money as men for the same achievement. And our sisters in the A-League women's are still pushing for football to be a full-time career so that they don't have to work part-time jobs like we had to. So still, you can have the Socceroos just about qualify for a major tournament and, you know, probably not progress past the group stage or reach group stage and maybe get into the next round or not much further. And they will take home a huge amount more than the Matildas will have done for reaching a women's um, World Cup final because the prize money coming from FIFA into those competitions is just so massively different. Um, so, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think two two World Cups ago, it was sort of the prize money for the women's was 30 million and the prize money for the men's was sort of, you know, close to 400 million. So we're talking about, you know, more than 10 times um, the, 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 the amount that the, the men get. And then for the 2019 World Cup, the women's was increased to 60 million, but the men's was still increasing as well. So the gap isn't actually really closing. And it's only by the men's 2026 World Cup and the women's 2027 World Cup that we're going to see equalised prize money. But then, I mean, you know, there's still such a huge gap between them that you think, well, shouldn't it go the other way, if anything, and more money be invested into the women's, given that it's been so um, let down for such a long time. Um, But yeah, so that's a big problem because the unequal prize money has meant that federations have been able to argue that, um, that, uh, that that they can sort of yes we we're paying them equally from what we pay as a federation but in terms of prize money we can't pay we you know we can't pay that equally and that was a big victory actually of the US women's national team because one of the things they got in their pay deal was uh prize money included so the prize money for the men's and women's teams that they win for competing major tournaments is pulled together and that is distributed fairly amongst them um and that's not what the Matildas have got yet which i think is something that they really need to push for but what happens generally is that one team 
um, you know, kind of gets a big result and then the next one follows and the next one pushes a little bit higher and gets a little bit more and then it has a knock-on effect. And so that's, for me, one of the exciting things about uh, what women's football can teach and what sport can teach people about struggle is that, you know, you don't you don't have to just settle. There is more and you can actually win. And we have so few victories nowadays, um, you know, given how on the offensive capitalism is generally um, that these like these small wins can actually be quite impactful and show people that, you know, actually struggle does win in a world where so often we're told that it doesn't. So they deserve a, a decent slice of the pie. At the same time, we also got to say that, you know, the extraordinary money rolling around in the men's game is not, you know, necessarily like the, you know, do we want, you know, Megan Rapino to be earning the money that Lionel Messi is? <laughs> no, I mean, that's obscene. No one should be earning that. Do right. we want women players to be able to earn a living that is going to sustain them? Yes. Do we want them to be able to have a, a home and to not worry about um, their future after football um, do we want them to be prepared for their future after football? And, and, with, and can they have, like, can they have in... a decent standard of living with just one job? Exactly that. Yeah. Can they can they um, can they just work the one job? Can they support a family? Um, can they, uh, you know, cover their transport costs, their food, their equipment? You know, all of those things. Yes, we want them to be able to live a sustainable life in the way that we would like everyone to. But then also a lot of the wealth and money in football isn't going on player salaries and player transfers, but is instead going back into, um, you know, schools and um, sports programs at grassroots level, or even into other areas of society. Why not into, you know, healthcare systems um, on issues that impact players, hedge injuries and all those kind of things that have, um, you know, proved to like be hugely impacted by playing sport Um you know, there could be a huge amount of money invested in things like that that would benefit society generally. Um, so, you know, yeah, yes, we want, you know, equal pay and all of these kind of things, but we also want it to be just a different world generally too. Yes, exactly. And talking about building that different world, we couldn't do that. And I'm sure you'll uh, agree, Suzanne, and you've already spoken about this. It's not only that we don't, as you were correctly saying, we don't, it's not like we want a few star players to get obscenely high salaries. It's also a question of the obscene profits that the owners of these uh, football teams and the football federation are making. And, and as you've written in your book, the oligarchs who are profiting from this sport, while the vast, not only the women's soccer players, but the vast majority of society is languishing with its most of its needs grossly unmet or undermet. And, and I totally agree. The, the ideas that you put forward about all of this all of this wealth actually flowing to the needs of society as a whole and i think as you were describing the story of the us women's team soccer team and the matildas and so on all of this charts the same course of the fight against misogyny gender pay gap and also how unions are imperative and even after uh, winning a union the fight is far from over winning a fair contract is a long and hard fight as the women soccer players are are experiencing and this is true whether you're a soccer player or a warehouse worker at Amazon or a public sector worker or a healthcare worker. And in fact, the power of solidarity that you've highlighted and everything you've said and also in your book is really inspiring. And I just wanted to mention to our viewers also that, uh, about how this is really playing out in real time in, in this, um, the, the fact that women soccer players are understanding 
that they need to have solidarity. You mentioned this uh, before, Suzanne, but how the Matildas released a collective statement on the eve of the Women's World Cup t tournament last year, 2023, calling out the gender pay gap presided over by FIFA. And I was particularly impressed by the fact that all 23 team members spoke up in this video and they talked about the importance of having a union, the ability to fight for a collective bargaining agreement and saying that they wanted to have a voice in something bigger than football. And most crucially, uh, they also stood up for rival teams in other nations who are still, as, as they said, are still denied the basic right of having a union, which you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's key, right? Like, And it, what's really satisfying working in women's football and with some of these players is that um, they're all incredibly intelligent because they've all had to be. Like, they've all, not, you know... in. in from a very early age, players in men's football are groomed for elite football, right? Like they are put into environments that um, cultivate them as football players, but not necessarily as people that are going to be valuable members of society, that are thinking, that are educated. You know, they pay, have their educations paid for, but it's, you know, very streamlined and things. Um, and, you know, sort of a side, sidekick to their their, their footballing um, education. Um, whereas these women players, they've had to study um like on the side they've had to you know get degrees they you know some of them still study Erin Cuthbert Chelsea has just finished a law degree um Leah Williamson England captain is a qualified accountant like these are people that have gone off and you know skilled themselves to a high level Lucy Bronze when she started was working in Domino's Pizza while she was playing and studying playing football studying and working in Domino's Pizza like they they are very grounded and it's like quite nice because it means they have a connection to like communities and ordinary people and society in a way that you know men's football have sort of been removed from it um so that's really great but yeah so they have this level of intelligence they are very very um committed to um solidarity and working together and they've had that through football because everything every single thing that they've done to be able to play has been one right um i think that you know what's what's kind of sad is that the unions that represent footballers aren't i don't, I don't think they see themselves as like labor unions in the traditional sense even though they technically are um you know obviously they get funding from the governing bodies to help um to help them run and things like that but um, you know, at heart, they are representing players. And I right. think that, like, in a, in many respects, they, they badly need good representation. But I, I don't think they're necessarily quite aware of how important that is. But it's getting there. And like I say, I said a couple of times already, but this um, gratitude complex has started to shift aside. And that's that's been a huge barrier to people speaking out. And once that's gone, you're starting to get these these powerful collective voices come together and and raise um raise concerns over things like equal pay and um, you know, threaten um action for um, you know, a lack of resource or whatever it may be. Right. And another area which has seen women's soccer players and also in other sports organizing is in, in relation to sexual abuse and harassment. To start with, can you talk about the Jenny Hermoso case where Hermoso, a Spanish woman football player, was outrageously subjected to a publicly seen non-consensual kiss on the mouth by Luis Rubiales, the president of the Spanish Football Federation? Tell us how this is a microcosm of sexism in sports. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just the very fact that, you know, that could happen in the public eye um like immediately raises alarm bells or you know what does he think is acceptable behind the scenes right absolutely yeah it just makes me so angry just th thinking about it 
Exactly. I mean, you literally, you know, you see him on the biggest stage. There's what, you know, close to a billion people watching worldwide um, on various broadcasts and streams and things. And he grabs, holds her face and kisses her square on the lips. And, you know, it's it's obviously wrong, right? Like he has, you know, repeatedly claimed in all of his statements, in his appeals to his three-year ban from FIFA that it was consensual. And she says it wasn't, eh? But also... Even if it was, so what, right? Like, this is a man in a position of power, the, the president of her federation, kissing her on the lips. Yeah, Whether and I, I don't think it not, can it actually... Matter, yeah, right? and I don't think it can actually be, I mean, in that sense, consensual, in the sense that he has so much power over her. Uh, and for that to happen publicly like that, it's just, you know, she has very little say in the matter. Exactly. And what is consent in that instance? Right. Like, right. you know, it's, um, you know, she, she what she says, she says no, but he's her boss on the biggest stage in front of the watching world. Like he didn't even really give her a chance. He just sort of grabbed her face and pulled her in. I mean, it, it's just horrific. But, um, you know, you say, how is it a microcosm of, of, of um you know, society generally is that, you know, this is so endemic in sport and there's so many issues with sport and, um, uh, and sexual abuse and assault and you know comments and things there's been so many um issues in countries across the world from the states to england to then you know um, more developing countries as well where um the power imbalances that football sort of um enables makes it really really ripe for predators because it's also very very easy to get qualified as an amateur coach it's very very easy to do your badges you have to have like you know um you know criminal record checks and things like that but you know, you renew those once a year and you, or it's, it's all it's all quite easy to be put in a position of power without uh, much regulation um, or checking on what is going on at, at grassroots level. So you, you've got a, a, a sort of a, a world that is very, very ripe. And it's not just football. You know, I've been dealing with um, some sexual abuse in sports cases in gymnastics, one yeah. in skiing as well. You know, the the. When you're putting, as a player, all of your ambition uh, in the hands of a coach or a couple of coaches who decide your future in that sport to determine whether you're going to compete at tournaments, whether you're going to be in teams, whether you're going to um, get the opportunity to go and compete in elite camps and have extra training, uh, which of the coaches is going to be in charge of your, um, your future. Like, all of those little things, like embed this level of um power into this dynamic that is really unhealthy um and then there's nothing following it up there's nothing that sort of checks in on that there's no regulation at all so it's it's like really really not just a microcosm of it it almost is a, a like an exaggeration of it as well because of that um so all of the things that happen in society generally all of the experiences that women have of abuse of assault they all they all exist within football right nothing is removed from you know what's going on in society and if anything it, within sport you've got this yeah again a sort of it's hotbed of it because, yeah. exactly yeah because it is so easy to um get in and command a level of control and the power structures within football are so um, dominated by, uh, you know, a group of people, you know, at, at sort of every level in every country. It's it's like fiefdoms and who you know, not what you know. And um, it, it's such a lucrative industry to be in that um, then getting disciplined is very difficult because 
you know, it's your friend that you've put into a position of power here. It's a friend that you've put into a position of power there. And if they're undermined, that undermines you. You've got their vote. You need their vote. Right. Oh, they've got an accusation against them. No, I need their vote. Let's protect them. You know, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So it's really um, distasteful in like so many ways. Um, and then, I mean, you've got the the fact that, you know, in the case of Jenny Hermoso, um, it, it wasn't a one-off incident, right? Like this was, yes, uh, well, A, in and of itself, in that evening, it wasn't a one-off incident in that he also lifted another player over his shoulders and um, kissed another one on the cheek. And then it's come out in the report, uh, FIFA have just released the findings of the how they came to the decision to ban him for, th- for three years from football. And they say that he also kissed one of the England players and um, stroked her on the cheek and hugged Lucy Bronze uh, inappropriately um, and things like that. So there's a number of things he did that night that were really like, um, you know, questionable. Um, but then the... It, that's it's it's not new in Spain because the Spanish women's national team have been protesting since like 2011, I think is one of the earliest examples, but way before that as well about the Federation's indifference to women's football. And they finished bottom of their group at the Canada World Cup and they called for the resignation of their manager and for better training and facilities. Um, he was sacked, but the senior players that had sort of led that rebellion were basically phased out of the squad. So there was a big like retaliation piece as well. And then the new manager, Jorge Vilda, was just another ally of the president. Um, And they've had big complaints about him for a number of years. So after the Euros in 2022, 15 players wrote a letter to the Federation saying they were going to withdraw from being called up because they felt their health um, and safety was being impacted by the environment around the national team. And the president of the Federation, Rubiales, who's been banned, he backed the manager and the players weren't called up. And so you've got some of the best players in the world not competing in international matches for Spain for like a good six plus months without much um, like sort of Ferrari like without much controversy people talked about it but nothing was done they just just got away with it because they could because that is the extent of the power of the leaders of football in various countries and even when you know Rubiales is seen on TV kissing her on the lips like sexually assaulting her that is what it is on live on telly it's you know a good number of weeks before he's forced to resign and even then he's clinging on to power and clinging on to power because he yeah, can because he's, there's he's, no he's check just, he, right? his response like, is yeah completely devoid of shame para que pidan mi dimisión is that so serious that i have to leave while having done the best job for spanish football Yesterday, Mr. Rubiales had been expected to stand down, but instead came defiance. I will not resign. No, voy a I will not resign. He said five times, I will not resign. And in fact, before this action, before FIFA was uh, and the Spanish Football Federation was forced to take this action against Rubiales because of the outrage against him and, and over 80 players saying they're not going to play until he, he, is, uh, he has uh, faced consequences. Before that, they actually tried to punish Hermoso for her courage in speaking up and saying she's going to face consequences, she's lying, and that there's, there's going to be you know, some kind of uh, retribution against her. They, they, they attempted that. They didn't, they, it's just that they didn't get away with it. And in fact, along these lines, can you also, I mean, obviously this is just such a systematic issue, the issue of sexual harassment, abuse, and even rape. And in fact, we, you mentioned gymnastics. Obviously, most people who are watching this will know the what, what's now come to be the biggest sexual abuse and harassment scandal in 
world sports history, which happened for two decades in the U.S. gymnastics team, where 500 women athletes, and many of them were minors when this happened, have said that there was systematic abuse going on. Can you uh, tell us what happened with the Afghanistan women's soccer team and what happened there and how you helped uh, bring that to light? Yeah, so... Um... It, it, so it came to me in sort of twenty nine, late sort of late twenty eighteen, um, where so I had previously interviewed the, um, she was uh, the captain of the Afghanistan women's national team. Just about the Afghanistan women's national team. This was about eight months before um, this sort of came to light. Um, about what it was like to you know and what women's football was like in Afghanistan, and we'd done in it, and we kept a relationship. And then she sort of tweeted months later about um, having been kicked off the team. A number of the players had because they refused to sign contracts that were going to basically sign away their rights to sponsorship. Um, that they couldn't have social media without the federation say so. All of these different kind of you know really oppressive um, things that were designed to drive them out of the team. Uh, many of those women competing outside of Afghanistan, um, like living in uh, the USA or Germany or Denmark, but competing for the Afghanistan women's national team. Um, and they, uh, you know, also extremely frustrated. And I reached out to um, Shabnan, who I've been in touch with previously and in interview, uh, interviewed previously. I said, what's going on here? I want to write about this. You know, what's happening? And she sort of said, spoke to me about it for a while and, you know, um, the difficult sort of, you know, kind of rock and hard place situation they've been put into um and then she said she, she kind of kept saying I needed to speak to their coach um and I, I just got the impression that there was something else going on there that she didn't really know how to say in the right way um and so she connected me with the head coach Kenny Lindsay who um is a former US player um she made a couple of starts for US women's national team and then um injury sort of ended her career quite early uh but really really like talented coach um she had been working with them for a number of years and I spoke to her and she basically said that um a load of the players have been being sexually abused by the president and a number of other people were involved in women's football in um in Afghanistan they had found out on a training camp in Jordan that that was the case when two of the coaches that had been sent with them um sort of took advantage of their position uh, of traveling with the players to take part in the camp um and uh, a number of players have made them aware of the advances of the president and um you know like you know really sort of serious sexual abuse we're talking you know quite extreme examples of rape of death threats um and uh, of, of people disappearing as well of players just disappearing and never being seen again and um so she told me all this information and I was like this is awful um, and needs exposing, but without any evidence, it's really hard to like legally publish it. So she connected me with Kalida Popal, who was one of the founders of the team and a former captain and had been coordinating the team from exile in Denmark, where she had been living for a number of years. Um, and she had been working for close to a year gathering evidence and information and witness statements from girls and trying to get the ones who are most at risk out of the country because the president of the Afghanistan Football Federation at the time, Karamadam Karim, was a really dangerous guy, ex-warlord, military man, you know, big connections. And, you know, she'd done a lot of work with uh, the coach, Kelly Lindsay, with um, a number of other people to help get some of the, the most vulnerable women out of the country at that time who had been sexually abused by the president to enable them to be able to give evidence 
evidence in a case to FIFA on it. Um, but the uh, the problem was is that FIFA were sort of dragging their heels and were being really, really slow to actually um, open the case against him formally. They were doing a lot of it behind the scenes quietly because he was a vote in the system. So they had to be quite careful about who they let know so they didn't get back to him. Um, so then um, they came to me asking for help and to publish the story and um, uh, basically with the intention of uh, making sure that uh, FIFA would sort of be forced to take it seriously. Um, so we published a story about the sexual abuse of the president um, and uh, then it you know, exploded things. Then literally within days, FIFA had formally opened their case against the president and suspended him as well as um, five other people. Um, then the um, attorney general in Afghanistan also launched an investigation. The government spoke on it. Um, it was all over the news. Um, so it then it, it sort of massively accelerated the pace of, uh, you know, it being taken seriously, which was really important. Um, a lot of um, the comeback from the federation and the president was that this was, oh, this was players, former players outside of the country, just angry at having been dropped from the team. And they were just, you know, a, axe to grind that kind of thing and so that was when we published um a massive interview with five players who had like who were in afghanistan and had been sexually abused by the president of the federation um showing you know talking about the extent of their the the abuse they had suffered that really then swung the um the narrative back on what he had done and not on you know kind of any axe grinding players that had just done their bit in trying to expose it so it was huge I mean he got banned for life from football uh, by FIFA and um, you know a number of others were being investigated and there was a warrant for his arrest in Afghanistan which he managed to avoid and you know then a few years later um, the Taliban take over and the ballpark changes completely and none of it is you know in the news anymore he's never been arrested and you know a lot of the women um, that were involved, you know, well, now they, they none of them are involved in football anymore because they can't be. Um, a number have got out of the country. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it was sort of football's first Me Too, um, big Me Too sort of movement story and was the tipping point for others to start, start coming forward. So there was a big case in um, Haiti uh, of the players being abused by the president of that federation. There have been, you know, cases in Gabon with um, male players uh, being abused. We did an article um, a number of years ago that was um, about all of the different sexual abuse cases in football that we had come across as the Guardian. Um, and we published a list of 12 countries, but like, you know, we actually had a list that was much longer than that. Um, but we couldn't like legally publish a lot of them because they were, um, you know, it was just what not enough evidence or some of them, you know, we, you know, kind of knew to a certain degree and had had reports of it, but we, you know, it wasn't quite enough to be published. So it's absolutely endemic. And Afghanistan was sort of the tip of the iceberg, making a lot of, a lot of people start to bring these cases to light. And then we had the cases in the U S around some of the coaches in the NWSL uh, as well um, issues in Canada too. So yeah, it, it really was a little bit of a, a tipping point for a lot of these stories coming to light and exposing just how endemic it is within football um and that in turn show you know like 
again points back to wider society because you know if we want to get rid of sexual abuse and uh inequality from football you've got to do it from wider society because if it exists in one it exists in the other so it then challenges a lot of people to think a little bit more about um about society as well as just you know these things happening within this little bubble of football right this is just really uh, both uh absolutely riveting this um, this story and and everything you've shared with us today Suzanne and and also extremely important from a standpoint of political analysis as you're explaining that there's no island of utopia that can be created under capitalism it doesn't matter whether you're in a barista at Starbucks or your Amazon worker or a healthcare worker or your a soccer player we're going to face the same problems that are endemic to a deeply unjust and unequal system like capitalism and i think one of the most important lessons i that comes from everything you've shared with us today is as you said uh, the rejection of the gratitude complex and taking up a militant uh, sort of uh, um, approach to fight back and i think that's most valuable and i think that will be familiar to many of the viewers of on strike So I really wanted to thank you Suzanne for being so generous with your time today and hopefully we can catch up with you again. Yeah, definitely happy to come on anytime. Um like I say there's always <laughs> always another little avenue of struggle within uh, sport and women's football at the moment. So there will, I'm sure there'll be many more opportunities for us to chat again. But yeah, it's very enjoyable to be able to like show people that sport isn't just about chucking a ball, kicking a ball and can be a little bit there's a little bit more to it than that. Absolutely. Thank you so much Suzanne and we'll see you soon. On Strike is a production of Workers Strike Back, a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all and against discrimination and oppression. Workers Strike Back is also calling for a new party for working people because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party represents us. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people funded entirely by working people. Solidarity.